Fundamentals. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Mike Reyes. And today we're talking about my favorite film of all time, the 1986 BBC miniseries, The Singing Detective. And now, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, Mike, automatically, but I, I just want to preface this before everybody gets into it, because I know a lot of people are probably going to be angry. Yes, it's a miniseries. I don't care. It's the greatest film ever made. Wow. It's, it's as if you read my mind, because I was going to ask, like, I was going to ask playfully just, you know, is a miniseries really a film? But it really is. It's, it's that sort of middle ground that it so fruitfully existed before we even, before we had streaming. And it wasn't quite TV, but it wasn't a full series. It was a mini series and it always felt like a, a theatrical event. But yeah, in turn, I will cut you off for a moment. I'll go by all means. I just want to tell the folks at home, in case you're just dropping in for the first time, uh, because of the allure of the singing detective, which quite frankly, why wouldn't you? Uh, we are a podcast that likes to basically go over the overdue rentals in your life. What have you not seen that you've always meant to see? Or what have you always meant to go back to? Now, if you want to find our back catalog, which is very much uh, two episodes in an intro, uh, but it's growing, you can find us at, at Rentals Overdue on Twitter, at Overdue Rentals on Facebook, I wrote it all down, <laughs> and at Overdue Rentals Show on Instagram. Now, should you want to send, shoot us a line or tell us we've been doing a bang-up job or even suggest a title like the great Robert Wool did on our show last week, you can write us at Overdue Rentals at gmail.com. That's us. That's us indeed, both jackets and all. Although there's tons of jackets in there, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll get a lot of jackets as, as the episodes go along. But um, more importantly, more importantly, I, I can't believe we're, we're gonna, we're doing the episode. It's my favorite movie of all time. We're gonna talk to the director, John Emil. Uh, I did, I cannot believe how many of John Emil's movies I've loved. Like I noticed this a couple of years back where he's one of those people like, he's kind of like Sidney Lamed in the fact that I look at so many of these movies that I love. And then sure enough, you look at the credits and say, wait, wait, John Emile, John Emile. It's like Entrapment, Copycat, Man Who Knew Too Little, The Core. Tune in tomorrow. Let's not forget tune in tomorrow. I still need to see tune in tomorrow, which is on our list. It's funny. And, and I, I actually, it's, I added copycat this morning because i forgot to put it on there and it's and that's another thing that we, we, we talk about a lot you know copycat i think is it's a good movie i could i kind of put it more in like the two and a half star kind of feel though but it's that movie that nobody seems to talk about almost people like kind of forgot existed unless you were back in 1994 or six or something yeah and, and i we, i want i i hope that we can bring attention back to those types of films because they need to be seen again but well, yeah. um yeah, especially today, today. I gotta. It's it's gonna be all about the singing detective, because this is this is my my grail. This is Mike. Did you Mike? Did you see Singing Detective? I had not seen the original Singing Detective. I had seen the two thousand three film remake. Now, but before before we get into any of that, since this is your pick, and since this means so damn much to you. I love seeing the enthusiasm on your face. Please tell me your origin story for The Singing Detective, including the amazing piece of memorabilia that unfortunately we cannot see on camera right now. Yeah, I mean, I'll get a photo out there of it. I, you know, I, The Singing Detective technically only aired on US television once. 
and it was two years after it premiered originally on the BBC. Oh, wow. And my father, I don't know at the time if he had been alerted to it or what, you know, because he, he had seen Pennies from Heaven, which is um, Dennis Potter, who, who wrote, you know, who's the dramatist, the very famous historical dramatist for the BBC and, and playwright and so on and so forth. Um, maybe he saw that he, it was his film. He wanted to tape it. So he, he recorded it on VHS. Um, and some point during my life, when I was in that 10 year old to 13 year old stage where film was really becoming big to me. Oh, I, I love that. Was like, I was, I watched it, but the thing was, I was so young that I hardly remembered it. And then I was in film school and my professor actually at the time showed it to the class. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I almost forgot about it. But even then it was hard for me to, to sit with it as much as I remembered it because there's other people around and, you know, people are talking during it and so on and so forth. So then I went back and revisited it on my own after, and it became history to me. I watch it every few months. Now this is about a little over six hours to watch the whole thing. You can watch it in, in broken up episodes and it means everything to me. And to the fact where when I was in, again, when I was in college, I had searched somewhere. I was just looking for memorabilia. Uh, I have, <laughs> I have my, my still sealed vinyl record for the soundtrack. I have my DVD set here, but a guy in Ohio in a library happened to have like a subway poster for the one time premiere it aired in the U S and I bought it. I framed it. It's hanging on my wall above my TV. And I just <clears throat> go ahead, Mike. It's all you choking up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I had heard that, that, like I had said before, the first time I'd ever heard of the concept of the singing detective, actually it wasn't the singing detective remake because as anybody, you know, I'm, I was into entertainment and film and musicals out of the blue. I randomly heard that the CBS show Chicago hope was doing a, an episode called brain salad surgery. And they had cited the singing detective as their inspiration. So thinking back on my like foggy memories of that episode, it was definitely that like, it was a direct reaction to the miniseries that had been about maybe a decade or so before that. Cause I think the episode aired in 98 and you're saying yeah. like 88 was when it was premiering in, in the U S yeah, a huge hit in the U S too. Well, I mean, it's, it's very funny. I mean, it's changed a little bit now, but back in like the early two thousands around, if you went onto IMDB, it's still technically, I think if I remember correctly, ranked as not only one of the highest rated items, uh, titles of, of the whole history of IMDb, but it ranked above things like The Godfather, uh, you know, and, and other popular classics. Um, wow. Yeah, it, it was, it, and, and it's, 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 the numbers, if I remember correctly, the numbers when it aired from what I read weren't as high as you may think, but its impact lasting has gone on you know, in, in so many different directions. And I think out of all the Potter works, it also is the most cohesive and most complete and most meaningful to me, um, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and again, there were other, besides Chicago Hope, you know, it also was the, the uh, I mean, it wasn't the inspiration, but part of the, the TV show Blackpool, which then America's version was Viva, Viva Laughlin. Right. You know, the musical numbers section of that was taken from the idea of what the Sing Detective, and again, Sing Detective wasn't the first one to do it. Potter's early, Pennies from Heaven, which also, Pennies from Heaven, 
the actual Hollywood remake of Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters actually wasn't that bad. Actually, that was that was a good, uh, you know, Hollywood film version of, of the original miniseries as well. But that's kind of I mean, even before that, it start, I think he started with it. But that was the big, you know, jump off point for that, that, uh, you know, lip synky musical, not musical feel. Yeah, though, I think with uh, with the, the Steve Martin movie, they actually did sing the songs versus yes. Singing Detective, where Singing Detective has always, even in the American remake, was always lip syncing because for anyone who doesn't remember that film or chooses not to remember that film, that was the remake with Robert Downey Jr. Uh, this was post Ally McBeal, pre-Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It actually was, and it's directed by Keith Gordon, who was his co-star in Back to School. Uh, you know, who was technically the main character in Back to School. Um, and the idea was, if I, remember, if I remember correctly, this was his first film back from being out of prison. Uh, oh. Yeah, if I, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong. I have to look back at that. I didn't really think about talking about it, but because I don't really want to talk about the remake too much. <laughs> uh, you got to address it a little bit. Like, you don't have to go into a deep dive. But... Well, you know what I'll do? Uh, you know, I think it's more important is before, before we get John in to talk to yeah. us, I think it's important for people who haven't seen The Sing Detective. And this is something that I, I've tried so hard. Everybody, I want to watch it. And I want everybody to watch it. I try to explain it. and You can't because, again, it's six plus hours. The first three hours, the first time you watch it, it's not going to make any sense. Uh, and ultimately what you're watching is, and this is not giving anything away, you're watching a story that is of a man who has what would be described as psoriasis to its greatest possible uh, medical explosion. Yeah. Skin peeling off, can't move. And this Dennis Potter went through this in real life, and that's where it came from. Um, and he's, he's a mystery writer who wrote a few, no, a, few, a few novellas almost, I would call them, uh, detective novels. Goes by the name of Philip Marlowe, which, you know, of course, harking back to the old the old, the old uh, Raymond Chandler character. And uh, he's in a hospital trying to get better. He's bedridden. And so since he has nothing else to do in his head, he's rewriting his most famous story, which is called The Sing Detective. And then at the same time, there are multiple levels where his life starts to overlap because he also has memories back to his childhood. And he goes into these fever dreams is where, the, where all the musical aspects come from it. He imagines people singing to him in essence. And they all start to collide. So in his real life, these images of what he's thinking is now coming in and almost acting as real life. And he's paranoid to the point where he's making up stories of what's going on in real life. And it's all to help ultimately figure out why this is happening to him. Yeah. That's and... just the very base genesis of what it is. There's almost like four stories being told. There's the actual real life current events that are happening. There is the novelization that he's going through, which is almost like screenwriting in his head. So that's the actual story is if you're watching an old 30s, 40s film noir type deal. There's his childhood. And then there's a level where they all of a sudden collide. And it's, it, you have to see it. It's incredible. Well, obviously, I mean, that's why it's an overdue rental. I mean, we, we, don't, just, we don't just put anything on here. We put on the movies that we really want you to go watch and I will tell you I was glad to finally see the original singing detective because I think even even with the the leg up that I had 
mm-hmm. by watching the the Cliff's Notes version. That's it's basically it's, it's a Cliff's Notes version. Yeah. And what's funny is that remake is a Dennis Potter screenplay that he apparently shopped around and tried to get made. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. And, so and from what I understand, Keith Gordon did have discussions with him before he passed. Uh, bef- but that was also before it was made. But yeah, still, still. Yeah, but anyway, uh, even with the leg up I had with the Cliff's Notes, watching the Singing Detective, it did still kind of. I, I needed to put things together in those first couple episodes. And then in between just really enjoying sitting through this story again, I could not believe that, you know, a younger Imelda Staunton is in here, a young Jim Carter, and those two are, were married three years at the time, I think, but both eventually found their way into like the Downton Abbey canon. And then Imelda Staunton and Michael Gambon both found their way into the Harry Potter canon. Which I actually... I bought up to him when I interviewed him. I, I interviewed him for, for a Harry Potter film and, you know, I couldn't help because it was my first time meeting him. And he is basically my favorite actor. Um, and let's not also forget that the singing detective, he was, he was a big stage actor, studied with Laurence Olivier, performed with Laurence Olivier, but he, he didn't really break into a lot of film and TV until later on in his life. And the singing detective is what really propelled him into stardom. Um, but I had, I had mentioned to him, <laughs> I said, um, you know, it's funny because The Singing Detective is my, my favorite movie of all time. And, you know, it's a movie where even though he's very hard on people, at one point or another, every single character is kind of nice to him or understanding, except Amelda Stoughton. And here she comes into the Harry Potter world, and she's the only person that won't give him any credit whatsoever. I, I'll, I'll link the interview somewhere. After. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, please do. But just what was so interesting to watch this was that what was so interesting about watching this was I could tell even just with the foggiest memory of the Cliff Notes version it felt more complete it felt more expansive and it's just this whole thing is basically one big Freudian psychological experiment that just it has all this wonderful layering of moments that do repeat and moments that transmutate into different things. And it's just going along with Philip Marlowe's psychosis. Yeah. And it's very much the case of, um, you know, again, things get repeated a lot, but they all there for a reason, but it is, it is another case of the idea of the unreliable narrator in a sense, because the idea is that he can't even remember how the situations went in his life. And that's kind of why they all collide in this sense. But Again, this is not ruining anything. And because there's a lot of levels also to enjoy what's going on and what's being said. But what hits me most about it and what has made me love films that follow the same theme is that this is a movie about understanding why you are who you are. It is basically the idea of needing to know why you are who you are now. And that I got, I got chills right now seriously, just even thinking about the idea of it in the sense of how it's presented in the film. I don't want to talk about it too much more because I think we're going to have a lot of situations we'll talk about as John comes in uh, for more specifics actually happen within the film itself as well. Oh, obviously. But again, it's just, it was, and there is like more characters too. I like the, the added layer of so many of these other characters, some things that happen to certain characters that happen to occupy a certain position of space and just genuinely like, e- even though some of these other characters are kind of quirky and kind of hard to deal with in their own ways, 
you never outwardly hate anyone. There really isn't any overt menace, but Marlowe's own psychosis, even Imelda Staunton's nurse character is just, she's a strict nurse. She's not a nurse ratchet type. She's more of a, come on, you really, you need to get out of bed. You cannot have a cigarette. You can't do this. It's like, she's just a very strict nurse. And then, and just yet again, they all have a purpose. There's all, it may be the same purpose as another character later on, but they're all there to point toward exactly what we're talking about by the time the film wraps up. And so with that, I think we should get John in here to talk more about The Singing Detective. Ladies and gentlemen, Overdue Rentals, scene three, episode three, John Emil. Thank you so much for joining us too. It's just a thrill to have you here and especially to talk about The Singing Detective. A, an enormous pleasure and a privilege. So l- let's jump in. Well, I mean, what we'll get for anybody who doesn't know, we'll get past the obvious first and kind of just talk about how you got involved with the project. Was this something you searched out or they searched you out for? Um, oddly, neither, um, if, if the truth be told. <laughs> um, I only got the gig um, because five other far more distinguished directors than I was at the time hmm. um, turned it down. A couple oddly thought that it was too personal. Um, one of them, I, had, I believe, had a film that they thought was going to happen and, of course, didn't. Um, but the way it actually came about was I had just made um, a show for the BBC called The Silent Twins, um, which was my first um, bit of film. Uh, up until that point, I'd, I'd done everything in what was called either studio drama or outside broadcast drama, which was Mm. a ridiculous hybrid where drama was shot multi-camera with a scanner van outside, um, and uh, but on location. Um, So I sort of paid all these painful dues. Um, Ken Trodd, the producer, walked into my office one day. I was cutting uh, Silent Twins, dumped six scripts on my um, desk, said, read these, let me know what you think. It's not an offer. <laughs> um, so I read, I started reading the script and I, I have a very vivid sense of memory of, of, of reading that first script. And I found my hands were shaking and I, I realized I was absolutely terrified reading it. Mm. I, I, I started to become terrified that I might be asked to do this unbelievably audacious and bold and vivid script. I started also to realize I'm, I was terrified that I might not be asked to do it. Um, so it was, I, I, I was I unequivocally knew that I was in the presence of a masterpiece. And, and, and that was the other thing that I think was making me shake mm. uh, as I read it. Um, the, the, the audacity, the vividness of it, the, the, the uh, scale of, of, of the undertaking that Dennis had, had, had laid out was just absolutely breathtaking to me, um, which is why when I went in um, to talk to Ken Trott about it, I told him all the reasons why, why it wasn't right. <laughs> <laughs> So it's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever done in my life, but I did it. I walked in to him and I said, well, Ken, I think it's a masterpiece. 
However, um, I think there are a number of things wrong with it. Mm. Uh, the the uh, last episode does not the sum is does not represent the sum of its component parts. Um, uh, Dennis loses interest in the whole singing detective period thriller story way too early. It's intrinsically interesting, and it looks like he just got bored with it and dropped it. And the relationship with the wife is not convincing. Um, she's far too much the product of his own fevered imagination and not sufficiently a, a real person so that no happy ending that involves him walking out of the door with her at the end is going to be believable to an audience because we never really invested in her as a real human being. Mm. Um, and um, if such and such an actor, and maybe I shouldn't mention him, um, is attached to Star, which I believe he is, I don't think that's right. Mm. <laughs> I okay. said, I think, I'll tell you who it was, it was Nicole Williamson. And I said, I think Nicole will get all of the, the irony, the abrasiveness, the intelligence of the man, but he will never give us the humanity and will never weep for him. Mm. Um, so there I was, I'd walked into the producer's office and effectively because Dennis Potter was notorious for not rewriting and not taking too kindly to directorial notes. I was effectively talking myself out of the first masterpiece that had ever landed on my desk. Well, it sounds like though that this is a masterpiece because of your input as well. I mean, granted it must've been before. I mean, Dennis is amazing, but it sounds like your input, you know, cause what the product is, is what I'm obsessed with. So mm -hmm. you obviously were able to get that input in it, it seems. Yes, I mean, I can tell you how that came about, which was not a straight line at all. Mm. Um, again, it was one of the most, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was extremely entertaining. Uh, I'll try and, and make it as, as short as possible, because, but I'll tell Every, you. Everything you need, just bring it on, we're, we're fine. Oh, we got um, time. Um, so I, I, Ken said to me, oh, well, um, perhaps you ought to tell Dennis all of that. Um, and um, uh, there was something in his tone that did not make me feel particularly reassured. Um, I went to, to meet with Dennis in the, in the place where he always lunched. Um, he's a great creature of habit. And um, uh, we sat and, and, and I thought, you know, Dennis is, is a hard talking, plain spoken, super smart guy. I'm just gonna lay it out. Mm. You know, so having told him that I thought he'd written a masterpiece, I then proceeded to tell him why I thought it needed, it could be better. And Dennis had, you know, who was sitting there smoking cigarettes with his buckled hands and sipping wine, you know, Gevry Chambertin, which he always drank, you know, holding the rim of the glass between the two fingers because his hands were completely buckled by this ghastly disease. Dennis sort of took on the expression of Saint Sebastian as one after another of the Romans arrows pierced him. It was, he, he, I remember him saying to me something like, well, John, if you'd bothered to read it properly, you'd have understood. He said something like, like that to me. Um, it, the meeting didn't go well. Um, 
it neither was an entirely a disaster. However, the second meeting absolutely was. Hmm. Um, I was asked to meet Dennis and somebody who, um, uh, Rick McCallum, um, who had joined the producing team at that point because Dennis and Ken were having one of their sort of creative marital rifts at the time. I think Dennis at the time thought I was Ken's creature. And um, Dennis was always at his worst, A, when he was drinking, and B, when there was an audience for whom he could eviscerate some other poor person, mm. um, you know, for their entertainment. I was the chosen person to eviscerate. Um, Dennis was always already a little drunk when I arrived. And I remember him greeting me with saying, John, you look a lot older than the last time I saw you. At another point, he said to me, um, well, you wouldn't have seen that in a movie, so you wouldn't know about that, would you, John? Um, I tried, I know, it was brutal. And I tried to get drunk. I thought that might help. And I just got a savage headache. And finally, I would love to say this was more, um, uh, more courage than despair, but it wasn't. It was pure despair. I finally turned to Dennis and Dennis used very ripe language. So I'm going to use an extremely bad word, which in English is not nearly as bad as it is in American. It's a word we only use about men, not women, where I come from. But I turned to him and I said, God, Dennis, you're a patronizing cunt. I said, honestly, you can take your fucking masterpiece and shove it up your ass as far as I'm concerned. Wow. Um, uh, Dennis looked at me uh, with this sort of pained expression, which I came to learn was another of his rhetorical tricks, and said, John, that's so mean. What, what made you so angry? Um, anyway, I called Ken Trod the following morning. I said, I'm out. I, I, I work with love and affection. I cannot work with this guy. This is not the way... I, I will not make a good job of this show under these conditions. Ken said, well, I spoke to Dennis and he felt he may have gone a little too far. You know, would you meet him one more time? So mm. very reluctantly, I went to our third meeting. Um, Dennis arrived um, and smacked down a copy of Peep's diary on the table and said, yeah, I just bought myself a new copy of Peep's diary. I bought you one. <laughs> I said to him, oh, that's funny, Dennis. Here, I bought you this book, um, which was a book we talked about in our first meeting and put it down on the table. He said, fuck Emil, can't one ever get one up on you? <laughs> and that was the beginning of, our, of a real conversation. Mm. He then said to me, you know, what the fuck were you going on about? What, what's the problem with the, with, the, with the Sing Detective story? So wow. feeling like a man walking into a minefield, you know, I said, well, Dennis, you know, uh, it's intrinsically interesting. I think it can reverberate extremely well throughout the entire episode. If you, I started to explain it. I got about halfway to explaining why I felt what I felt. And he went, okay, all right, shut up. 
Okay, I've got it. I got it. Shut up. What else? And oh gradually, I started to realize there's a man who who only need you only needed to suggest the problem. If you went even halfway towards suggesting a solution, you were going to piss him off. Mm. And so my first lesson with Dennis was actually trusting. Um, was in trust really um we finished conversation he he said we finished lunch and he said well come back to my flat for a cup of coffee and we'll finish talking so i went back to his flat we talked um i called ken trod and he said what happened i told him and said we'd gone back to dennis flat he went oh you went back to dennis flat he went, oh my God, I've known Dennis for 30 years. He's never asked me back to his flat. Oh my God. Um, so I got the job. It was an enormously pressured um, uh, pre-production period. I think I started, I seem to remember, I started in February or March. We were shooting by June. The first episode was on the air by uh, in November. Hmm. Uh, they wanted it all out um, for the BAFTA Awards that year. Um, and there I was in, in prep. Dennis was extremely sick. He'd had a very savage attack. Um, uh, he was taking the, the, these dreadful drugs that ultimately gave him cancer and killed him. Um, and he called me and went, well, John, You'll be very pleased to know that I've decided to rewrite. I went, mm. oh, that's that's fantastic, Dennis. I'm I'm really pleased. He went, yup. I'm just going to rewrite the whole damn lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm in prep. I'm looking for locations. I'm casting. I'm I. You know, the pressure is enormous. Wow. And, I believe my voice went up at least two octaves at that point. I said something like, um, Dennis, no, no. I mean, you really, you don't really need to, to rewrite the whole thing. Just, just a bit. He went, no, I can't do that. He said, I, if I rewrite, I've just got to start at the beginning and go through to the end. So for the second time, I really had to trust him. By this time, we'd met enough times I'd really started to, to uh, love him. Mm. Um, I, I, he made me cry, not in a mean way, just because of his fucking courage and fortitude and the, some of the brutality of what he'd been through in his life, you know, just moved me to tears. So I'd really grown to love him quite a bit by that stage already. And I knew that I had to run interference for him with production and let him do what he needed to do. And what he then proceeded to do was probably the most extraordinary feat of creative endeavor that I've ever been party to. Um, he, you know, under in, in the grip of this dreadful disease, skin erupting, the joints aching, everything that's in the singing detective he really went through um it's no exaggeration in fact some of it has been played down because the truth was even was, was truth 
hard to believe and hard to stomach. Um, so under, you know, in the grip of this appalling disease, he sat down and laboriously wrote in ledger books in beautiful copper plate writing with almost no corrections because his, he couldn't use a word processor. He rewrote all six episodes, one after another, um, working all through the night, sleeping mostly through the day, one episode a week. Um, there was almost nothing you know, I've worked with with writers all my life. I was script editor and a, a literary manager until long before I was a director. So I've worked with many writers on many scripts. Um, I've never known a writer with such an unerring eye for keeping what was good and 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 losing what wasn't. Um, he rewrote all six episodes, and when I told him that I thought episode six still wasn't the sum of its preceding parts he actually wrote it again hmm. um and um you know i it it truly was one of the most astonishing feats of of writing i've i've ever experienced uh well i mean it to imagine all the stuff you must have gone through in production for if this was just a normal production as it would have went smooth from beginning to end must have been insane to imagine all this going on must have been absolutely over the top but i'm wondering if does that mean the final scripts were very specifically the exact episodes we saw or you were still kind of doing things in editing by editing pieces of the noir story back into other places that may have not been originally or his no. childhood memories back in you know, Dennis was immensely specific in the scripts. He would he would specify, you know, especially with the music, exactly where the cuts would come. Um, he would specify the imagery uh, and um, uh, the the scripts were tremendously specific. There, however, even when you've got the finest actor in the world, who's perfectly chosen speaking the best written line in the world if to your ear as a director that is not sounding authentic you have to change it so it was quite interesting once i i was sort of firmly in the saddle on this show i i it's hard to explain but i i i felt an overwhelming sense of certainty about what dennis wanted and and um indeed what i wanted and when dennis was too sick to visit the set he came to rehearsals once and i think came to the set once but that was it otherwise he looked at dailies um and um I, there were only two things he ever criticized about what i did and i'll, I'll tell you about those in a second if you're interested oh yeah but, because they, they're in a sense illustrative of, 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 of something uh, I, I, I think that's quite illuminating. But um, yeah, I, I changed a lot, to be honest with you, when stuff wasn't working, when actors came up with better ideas, when production requirements required changes, I made them. 
and I made them oddly with the sense of, of certainty that, that they would be okay. And interestingly enough, Dennis never commented on a single one, on a single change that I made. And, and he was extremely vigilant about everything. So I, I assumed, and I think quite rightly, that, that he was happy. Um, the two things that, that we argued about, <laughs> it's, it's quite funny. Um, there was a scene that he hated and, and he told me, I hate that scene. I want you to reshoot it. I said, the reason you hate it is you hate the writing. Uh, and and he, he went, that's not the point. I said, yes, it is the point. You hate it. You, Dennis would always, when he wrote scenes that were striving to be funny, he was always savagely critical of, of himself. And mm. there was one scene. So I said, fine, you rewrite it. I'll reshoot it. And we, we reshot that one quite happily. The two things that he was, he attacked me for and Dennis Gully could attack. Um, uh, but, but, and, and neither of these were uh, in any way malicious. He went, he went, there's a scene um, in, I think, episode three, where we meet uh, Marlowe's mother uh, back in the days when she was a younger woman and she's having tea with the, the, her, her husband's family and uh, her father is sitting by the fireplace spitting into the grate and finally she snaps. She can't bear the sound of this old man spitting gobbets of green and black phlegm into the fireplace where they sizzle. Dennis described all of that in detail in the, in the script. I had them taking the jam with a spoon, right? He goes, uh, and he goes, why the fuck did you have them taking jam with a spoon? We would never have eaten jam with a spoon in my family. It was always a knife. I said, <laughs> I had them use the spoon because I thought she, with her pretensions to middle-class manners, um, was... Um, would have made them to uh, eat the, uh, the jam with the spoon. And, you know, his, uh, his mother, like, expresses her contempt for it. You know, well, we've never have done that in my family. <laughs> that was one argument we had. Uh, the second was um, a scene where um, the old man who dies of a heart attack in episode three um, is acting up with his wife, um, uh, Imelda Staunton's nurse is, is standing by and he keeps acting up and he, she finally smacks him hard around the face. She says, the, the nurse says, I can't remember her name now, Mrs. Wilson. Oh my goodness, <laughs> Mrs. Wilson. And she says something like, it's the only way, nurse. Um, he can't, it, you, you've got to give him one. Yeah. He can't hit you back. Not no more, he can't. Well, when we, we rehearsed the scene, I, I gave the actor playing the wife 
the note that that there was a profound sadness in that not no more he can't and she found it she found that that you know he's a dying old man and despite the fact that he'd clearly been brutal and smacked her around a lot there was a sadness in there and it was deeply moving and affecting to me dennis went what did you make that you went soft on that old bitch <laughs> He said, she was a total old bitch, that one. Uh, she would never have been that soft. And I think when I kind of look back at, at one of the things that, that I brought to, the, to Dennis's unequivocal masterpiece, I do think that unlike many of the other directors that worked for him and with him, that I genuinely loved him. I was not intimidated by him. I, I grew to genuinely love him. And, and that warmth and affection I felt for him, I think infused a lot of the choices that I made in the story. Mm. And I think, you know, uh, by and large, as I said, I was given the masterpiece. My job was not to, to do what I frequently feel I have to do as a director, which is elevate something from a B, hopefully to a B plus or even an A minus. I felt my job on this one was to live up to it. Um, and that was a, a, a real challenge. But I do feel that I brought a warmth of sensibility and humanity um, to the storytelling um, that sometimes Dennis's work um, can lack. I'm just amazed that you mentioned that uh, Nicole Williamson was going to originally play Philip Marlowe. Uh, tell us a little more about how you got Michael Gambon uh, in the role and how it was to, to work with him on this. Well, Michael was, was virtually unknown to the British public. I mean, he was playing King Lear at the National Theatre at the time, but the wider British public virtually had no idea who he was. He, to my knowledge, done virtually no television at the time, um, or, or in, in incredibly little anyway. Um, every actor I knew revered him, but most even well-informed, sort of culturally well-informed people uh, had no idea who he was. I chose Michael for, for several reasons. Um, you, uh, I felt he had tremendous humanity, uh, warmth and, and enormous depth of humor. I mean, to give you an idea, Michael's class, this is a classic Michael statement. Um, I say, what are you doing tonight, Michael? He went, oh, got to go down to the National, do a bit of face pulling. That's what he called playing King Lear at the National Theatre, doing a bit of face pulling. Um, you know, um, so he had enormous humour. He had the temperament um, to survive four o'clock calls in the morning with five hours, six hours in the makeup chair putting on all of that terrible scabby makeup and stuff. Yeah. You know, again, sometimes you, you just need to choose an actor 
as much for temperament as for talent. Um, and, and, and Michael had the kindness and the patience um, to really suffer through all of that um, with tremendous fortitude. Um, and um, he also had the intelligence. Um, you know, as good a director of actors as I feel I am, hope I am, there are a few things I can't really convincingly get an actor to be if they're not. I cannot get them to be intelligent to my satisfaction if they're really not. Give them the smartest lines, put a pair of glasses on them and, and pretend that they're a Nobel Prize winning physicist, but you know, with a six pack and, and you know, 32, <laughs> two years old Nobel Prize. Of course. Like Aaron um, Hart in the core. Yeah. Um, but uh, we can, that's another topic. But, <laughs> oh but, no, that's another episode. That's that's totally know, another. Um, oh, believe but, me. But um, you know, I cannot really get an actor to be convincingly intelligent if they're not. I cannot get them to have a real sense of humor if they don't, and I cannot get them to understand irony if they can't. Hmm. Those three things I've accepted are limitations. Fortunately, Michael Gambon got all of those, you, you checked all of those boxes, you know, to total um, perfection. Um, the first time he was wheeled in in a wheelchair, it's quite astonishing, in full um, makeup. The entire set went quiet. It was, we were all just shocked. He was wearing those desperately sad um, institutional hospital pajamas his face and hands just red and blistered and scabbed and literally all talking, joking on the set stopped. And there was, there was a sort of painful silence into which Michael Gammon said, what's all this fuss about Chernobyl? I went there for a holiday. It didn't do me any harm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that was, that's, that's Gammon. I mean, he's a tremendous practical joker. And, um, you know, from that moment till the absolute very last time I called cut, um, there was, I swear to you, and frequently in these interviews, I lie. When people <laughs> ask me, you know, how I was working with so-and-so, I go, oh, marvelous. Yeah. Um, I, uh, but I can tell you with my hand, firmly placed on my heart that um, he was an absolute, utter, unalloyed joy to work with. But he, he's, he's obviously also, I mean, it's just to speak to, again, how great of an actor he is, obviously going to do the work and pay attention to what he needs to have beyond just that jovial, like, I'm here to work and it's okay. Because like, I, I watch old videos of Dennis and watching... Michael's hands and then watching Dennis's hands, it's like, I, w I would think he just, he actually suffered from the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was an extraordinary, it wasn't an impersonation. Um, Michael didn't spend that much time with Dennis, mm. but it was a, 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 an incarnation. He, he utterly and totally incarnated um, Dennis. Um, and did so with remarkably little 
of the kind of um, effort, intensity, grandiosity that some actors would go about playing a role like that. Michael's instinct was always to underplay, undercut, find a joke. Um, you know, uh, Michael didn't like to talk a lot about stuff. My best notes to him were always simple one, two, two word notes. Um, uh, you know, it's just like trying, it's like steering a Ferrari or, 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 or a, an Arabian racehorse, you know, just a tiny touch of the reins, flick of the wheel, and Michael would know where to go, what to do, how to do it. And you really needed that, especially with a character like Phil Marlowe, where just you're literally in one scene with any character. He'll go from, oh, I'm wounded to, oh no, I'm gonna wound you, to just absolute helplessness. And again, just as Matthew had said, you know, he is he just puts in that time and energy. And then to play these other variations of the same personality in these other realities is another level that just expounds on this, especially within the, the film noir style. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, Michael, um, M Michael just flew at, at the sort of Philip Marlowe detective role, this, his period gumshoe character. Um, you know, he, he, he knew exactly where to go with that. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, for example, with Patrick Malahide, who's playing three different characters, two, two Binnies and one Finney, I believe. Um, you know, Patrick needed to analyze meticulously um, each, each character, demarcate their boundary lines, differentiate them in, in, in meticulous terms. So we spent hours and hours um, sort of laying out, putting sort of stakes in the ground to, to delineate those characters. Um, the only time that Dennis actually came into rehearsal, <laughs> he completely devastated Patrick. Oh. Um, uh, this is classic writer, this is why writers should, shouldn't be allowed to direct unless they really understand actors. But Dennis came in, you know, and, and everyone was extremely nervous because it was the first and only time he came into rehearsal. And um, we, we finished the scene and Patrick turned somewhat anxiously to, to, to Dennis and, and went, you know, what do you think? And Dennis said, well, Patrick, you've just got to remember that your character is just a figment of somebody else's imagination. And I, I've never seen an actor implode quite so completely and totally as, as Dennis basically <laughs> broomed away all of the careful contours <laughs> lines that, that Patrick had created for his characters. Oh, that, that, that actually kills me because I, for the longest time, thought I was projecting this idea on what I thought Patrick Malahide bought the role because I always thought he was kind of technically playing four characters because for the modern day Finney he has to be what may be real and what right. Marlowe thinks may be real and yeah, I just I yeah. thought that was incredible yeah exactly so um but you know 
try as an actor, try playing being the figment of somebody else's imagination. It will undo you. And yeah. it undid, it took me, it took me several days to put Humpty back together. <laughs> as Patrick and I carefully reassembled all of the criteria that we created for this character. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's incredible because it, it's, it both, I mean, just to hear about what's happening, but then also kind of, it's not validation in a way, but when you, when you spend so much time, so I spent a lot of time my entire life just thinking about this movie. And every time I rewatch it, because I do watch it like every few months, mm. to just like think, I was like, maybe I'm just thinking too far into it. But then to find out that I wasn't actually is. No, I mean, yeah. it, it, it's a piece that really sustains. A, a, you can think as far into it as you like, I think. You know, yes. so many times as a director, I find myself touching the shallow, stony bottom of a piece. Um, you know, you try and explore depth and of character, and and you just find yourself hitting this rocky, impermeable bottom because the river doth not run deep. Um, this absolutely does, and rewarded all of the time. Uh, all you know, and as close a scrutiny as you ever cared to to give to these characters. Um, one of the enormous joys about having the script was that I was finally able to go to virtually every actor that I'd long loved and long cherished the desire to work with and say, here, here's, here, look at this role. You know, finally, here's something that's worthy of you. You know, and so many of the people that I cast were actors that I just loved and coveted at the opportunity to work with and you know each of them could t look at these roles and go yeah damn right i'll play that role oh I, I was just i was just thinking because it's again a movie i watch fairly often and it's something that i could always discover something new in but now as i'm talking to you about it i start to now think about things that never really kind of came to mind because like i know Dennis's, you know, personality as it's been put out there into the media. And, you know, I, of course I never met him personally, so I wouldn't know, but at, by the time, while he's always been very personal in what he's pre presenting, this has been the most personal. And it's a movie about always to me, understanding who you are and why you're this way. So I'm wondering if it made him more uptight and angry maybe because it's like, you're telling me that what I'm telling you about myself is not true. No. Okay. Um, a, I never told him that anything was not true. You know, I, 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 Dennis, where to begin on this one? Mm. Um, you know, Dennis always maintained that this was not autobiographical. It was personal, but not autobiographical. That was, to a very considerable extent, fiction. And a self-protective fiction. And one which I was happy to uh, allow him, uh, to, to indulge him in. But the truth is that it was way, way beyond just personal. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, 
when we got to the end of our, the first read through, we got the whole cast together, we sat in a room and it took six hours. We read the, the entire six episodes through. We got to the end and Dennis was white. Mm. And I, I went up to him and I said, you all right, old buddy? I, I call him old buddy, uh, you know, as, as, as old, old mate. And he went, yeah. I said, what's up? He said, I just never realized it was so fucking close to the bone. Mm. Um, and, and that reaction was, was enormously sort of talismanic to me, really, um, going forward. Because, you know, I just knew that all of it was really close to the bone. Um, you know, Dennis had two sides to him very, you know, the, 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 the public persona of Dennis Potter, you know, with, uh, that I knew growing up was vicious, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, cynical, smart aleck, um, widely excoriated by most of the media. He was intensely disliked in most quarters because he was smart and he was just smart and super abrasive and the kind of guy people love to hate until they saw that final interview with Melvin Bragg when he had about a month to live and he was sipping morphine. And suddenly the, the great unwashed British public got to see the side of Dennis Potter that I'd grown to love. Um, but that was really the first and only time Dennis showed that sign of him, mm. himself. You know, an intensely vulnerable, tender man, you know, loving and fiercely loyal. Um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sanctifying him. He was a shit in, in, <laughs> in so many ways. But there was, there was that part of him, and it was expressed in, 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 in this film um, as strongly and as clearly as the self-loathing um, that he was absolutely riddled with, um, you know, and, um, you know, extraordinary speech about, you know, I want something like, I want to fuck you. So while I'm fucking you, I can turn and look at myself in the mirror and spit at my own reflection. You know, that, that sort of deep um, skein of, of self-loathing ran very, you know, was very, very strong in Dennis as well. Um, so, you know, there was never anything in it that I felt was untrue. There, there is a part of Dennis's writing, however, which I would call the sort of clever and nasty side of it. You know, where essentially characters are, are simply um, sort of metaphorical chess pieces on a board that he's pushing around to suit his own uh, hypotheses. Um, the sort of Finny Binny fantasies with, with, with Finney and his wife very much came into that sort of clever but nasty side of, of, of his work. And there are some plays that I think by and large 
were, were, were that kind of writing throughout. Um, wh what I think was so interesting about the singing detective was that, that they, those kind of scenes were always counterpointed with a different, um, different reality. Um, you know, the moment you got into those extraordinarily profound and beautiful scenes with Bill Patterson's Shrink, for example, yeah. you know, those, those, those scenes delaminated almost immediately. They're just stripped away of all of their clever nastiness and the kind of authentic pain that underlies them is, is just laid out sometimes almost unbearably with unbearable nakedness really and that's just uh i'm glad you brought up bill patterson because that was just another person that i was so glad to recognize you know i've seen him on uh you know as a modern viewer on uh law and order uk on doctor who and, and most recently outlander and then mm. i hear his voice and it's like wait a minute and then i just look at him and it's like just so, I saw younger Bill Patterson. Uh, you've got Jim Carter and Amilda Staunton both in here who, you know, between Harry Potter and Downton Abbey, I just love them to death. And then yep. naturally Michael Gambon with his uh, yep. Potterisms as well. Yep, absolutely. I mean, um, I really was a, a kid in the proverbial candy store um, when it came to going out to those actors. And you know, Janet Sussman, Alison Stedman was another mm -hmm. actor I, I venerated for, for years. And to be able to go to her was was such an enormous treat. Joanne Wally. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, she's so yeah. wonderful in this. Yeah. I worked with Joanne three times since. I've worked with Bill uh, three times, uh, twice since. Um, I cast him in creation as a shrink as well. <laughs> um, he played the role so beautifully. It seemed like only right that he should play Darwin's shrink as well as, as Marlowe's shrink. Yeah. It's basically the Bill Patterson cinematic universe. He's, he is the universe's shrink. Yeah, exactly. Ah, brilliant. It's, it's another, it's another thing, you know, about the film too, that, uh, you know, for as long as it is technically, you know, every single piece has its purpose, has its point. You know, it's, it's, it's the perfect example of what people would, you know, go to check off his guns. Like nothing is wasted. You know, I, I remember first watching and seeing Mr. Hall and Reginald and going, okay, I, I like it, but is there going to be a point later on? And just, yeah, there's a point later on. They're there for a reason. So to have actors who can always bring, you know, that certain levity to each scene must, must just absolutely be wonderful. Yes, uh, it, it totally was. And, uh, you know, I, I love George Rossi in Ron Cook's M Mysterious Men, for example. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, and, and Reginald and Mr. Hall, um, you know, Mr. whining, bitching old Mr. Hall and phlegmatic Reginald, who turns out to be reading the novel. Um, they were all quite sort of delightful, um, just delightful roles to play with and to, to bring to the screen. Um, is, it, it, I'll tell you another anecdote, if you'd like, about, about casting. Um, 
So uh, I'd cast Ron Cook as um, um, I'd cast Ron Cook as the first mysterious man, and he's he's very diminutive, Ron. He's probably five foot four or something like that. So I knew I wanted either somebody very um, very uh, tall or or pretty large, because I, I definitely wanted this sort of Laurel and Hardy-esque sort of quote. Michelle Gish, the casting director, said, oh, I've got exactly the person to play the other mysterious man. Um, he played Big Julie in Guys and Dolls. He's perfect for it. And in walks Jim Carter, who is indeed six foot four and was uh, had only done comedy and um, oh my God. Um, seemed perfect for the role. And Jim sat there talking with this lovely kind of chestnut brown voice of his and cracked a few jokes, which oddly made me feel a little sad. <laughs> I don't know why. And when we said goodbye, um, he he left the, my office and on impulse I went out and watched him walk away down the corridor with his big earlobes and and his his big hands sticking out from his cuffs the way tall people's arms often do with shorts and never shirts are never quite long enough and I felt this enormous wave of warmth and sadness for him. And I, I walked back in and Michelle said, yeah, he the one? I said, yeah, I want him to play the father. Because he was, <laughs> I had no idea, I had no idea how that character looked. Yeah. But I knew exactly how I wanted him to make me feel. And Jim uh, coming in for that audition um, made me feel the sort of sadness and instant affection that I knew I wanted to feel for his dad. Um, it was one of the best casting decisions I ever made in my life. And, and I know it changed the trajectory of Jim's career because nobody had ever taken him seriously as an actor before, as a serious actor anyway, mm. at least to my knowledge. And... Um, um, he was so absolutely unforgettable. The single image of him standing with the raised hand as, <sighs> as his son pulled away, the last time his son ever saw him. You know, I knew it needed to haunt me. And I knew that Jim could absolutely break my heart at that particular moment. Um, and at the risk of... of, of um, overdoing the stories, I, 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 I will tell you how I did cast George Rossi as the other mysterious man. <laughs> um, so George came in um, to, for the other mysterious man. And sure enough, he's a big, strong guy. But he's a sweet, gentle soul. And I really was concerned that he would ever be able to express the viciousness that I was looking for mm. you know, in The Mysterious Man, who could both be comical and scary. So I said to George, George, will you, do, will you play with me for a minute? 
went, oh, okay, all right. And um, I said, so I set up this improvisation where um, he was an enforcer, basically. He worked for a guy called Big Jimmy or somebody. And I was, you know, I said, the door to my office is, is it's an apartment. And uh, I owe Big Jimmy 2,000 quid and you've come to collect it. Uh, so Michelle's sitting there. I, I put on my best acting face and he goes out the door, knocks on the door. And, and uh, I go, who is it? And he goes, it's the milkman. <laughs> and I go, no, it isn't. The milkman's been already. Are you come from Big Jimmy? He goes, yes, you own 2,000 pounds. I said, well, you can tell Big Jimmy to fuck off because I don't have the money, all right? Which was about as far as my acting went. <laughs> because about that moment, the door bust open and 250 pounds of completely berserk actor barrel into the room, grabbed me by the scruff, grabbed me by, by my neck, actually, hauled me across the room. I, I, I basically, I, I have a, a brief memory of Michelle Gish's absolutely horrified and appalled face as, as George got me around the neck, threw me down into the chair, put his face right into mine, and I can still remember his aftershave, and, and said, give me the fucking money. And I went, all right, George. Okay, you got the part, you got the part. At which point, dear George, just went, oh Jesus, oh God, I'm so, oh my God. I'm sorry, I got to sit down. I've got to sit down. Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. You're right, like this. It was one of the funniest, sweetest moments of casting I've ever had. Um, and I, I managed, I, I got away without serious injury and George got the role. <laughs> but wow. uh, yeah, adventures in casting. That was, that, those were two, two examples. See this, th these are just great reasons why there's, there's such a rich legacy to this series because uh, premiered in England in 86. And I think according to Matthew's poster 88, it comes over to America. Right, and yeah. afterwards, like there was a, there's not only a more modern remake that they did, but there was also an episode of Chicago Hope where it was very influenced by the whole singing detective vibe where one of their surgeons undergoes brain surgery. Uh, were you ever consulted for either that episode or even more specifically, were you ever consulted for the remake uh, when Paramount, because at that time uh, you were doing the core, if I'm not mistaken, for Paramount? No, it's long, it was well before that. Oh. Um, it, it was quite a while before that. And the answer is yes. Um, this is difficult. Um, Dennis was enormously keen for me to direct the movie. Hmm. Um, you know, we'd gone through our stuff together and, and it was Dennis's nature to be fiercely loyal and possessive of, of, of the, the few people he loved and trusted. Um, he showed me the script um, long, long, long before it was um, made into a movie. 
And it was an extremely painful thing for me because I didn't think it was very good, honestly. He was very proud of it. Um, you know, Dennis fundamentally despised Hollywood, absolutely despised Hollywood. And um, he felt it was a shallow dream machine, you know, brought up as he was as a socialist kind of believing that that television was the great demotic medium and the most important medium for uh, you know political moral debate he found hollywood shallow and and trivial and uh, overflush with money and it never treated him kindly frankly um so when he was writing for Hollywood, Dennis would never put the kind of vulnerability into his work that he did when he was writing for British television. Um, he was very pleased with the conceit that he found, moving it from the uh, 40s to the 50s, you know, 30s and 40s, essentially, to the 50s, moving it from the forest of Dean and a rough tumble mining town to the Midwest, um, Americanizing so many things. Um, the problems for me with that script were firstly, why anyway would I want to make a short story out of a novel? I made a novel. Why would I want to, six and a half hours, why would I want to make something that was two? Uh, that was reductive in almost every single way. Secondly, without Dennis's intensely personal connection to the environments, the worlds, the people, um, I felt the characters lacked authenticity, the kind of, of granular authenticity that, that was so manifestly there in the scene detective, um, the, the series. Um, thirdly, the music. Dennis had grown up listening to those songs. You know, the very thought of you and I forget to do, the sweetness, the naivete, the ache, the sort of, the, the, the sweet ache of, of so much of that music. Even, you know, the ways in which he managed to turn a song like Al Johnson's, um, after I'm gone, after I'm gone, you know, he gives it to the scarecrow and it becomes terrifying and sinister. <laughs> yeah. But they're all immensely personal responses and authentic responses to music that he'd listened to as a young, as a boy. Um, music of the 50s and Lipstick on My Color was the same problem I felt, was different. It was chirpy, shallow, and, and Dennis didn't have the same profound emotional response to that music. Mm. And it, it shows, you know, it showed in Lipstick, in my, on, uh, Lipstick on My Color. It showed in the movie version of The Scene Detective. And finally, without all of the time that, that, Dennis took to explore character, to peel away the layers of the onion, to 
to exfoliate um, character and situation and concept. What you get left with in a movie to our version, you know, the Reader's Digest version, if you like, of, of the series, uh, are all of the um, formal eccentricities, people bursting into song and all of that, but with none of the deeper substance. Um, you know, the same problem was true of the movie version of Pennies from Heaven. Um, you, it ends up with lots of flashy musical numbers, but remarkably little substance otherwise. So I was, Dennis wanted me to do it. And I was, I, I just uh, frankly prevaricated. Then for a time it was owned by TriStar who approached me and offered me a lot of money to direct it. And um, I, I declined. Um, I just, for, the, for all the reasons that I've just told you. Yeah. And um, eventually, I can't remember which, I think TriStar either was, was shuttered or, or they sold it to somebody else. And um, a little known actor called Robert Downey signed up for it. <laughs> um, uh, but um, it's not a decision I've ever regretted, for sure. Do you think, though, that we're with the new kind of golden age of TV and or streaming? I mean, I don't want to see somebody try The Sing Detective again. I don't want to see somebody try Pennies from Heaven again. But maybe it's time. I think Cole Lazarus specifically could probably do with a more modern feel to it or, or at least production value wise. Or do we not do these things without Dennis? Hard for me to say. Um, I, I, I wasn't nearly as as ardent of fan as I would like to have been of, of those last two works, Cold mm. Lazarus and... Um, karaoke. Yeah, karaoke. Um, you know, I know they were written from an authentic place. I just, um, I'd really want to look at them again and really try and understand why they, they came more under the, the clever and nasty headings for me, Dennis's work, than the deeply passionate and sort of nakedly authentic. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't really feel qualified to answer that. I mean, hmm. they were very much made for the television of the time. They were by their nature quite static. Um, uh, they didn't have the sort of cinematic sweep that the singing detective had, for example. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure how how well they 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 suffer revision, but you know, somebody I think will feel inspired to do it, and maybe they should. You know, I, I wish we could keep you here forever because uh, I have so much more I would love to talk about, but I know we all have to eventually go. Uh, I mean, like, just as a for instance, and this is not even, this is not even a question. This is more of a, because for everybody I've ever talked to, nobody seems to bring up the point about the title of the Sing Detective because I dig deep and I'm like, nobody brings up the point that it's also, you know, sing stool pigeon, sing, tell me things. And I, I've always just wanted to know, does, does anybody else think that way? Is it just me? Well, it almost wasn't the title either. It's true. True. Um, it yeah, smoke, smoke, smoke yeah. Rings. 
it was going to be called smoke rings for a long time. This idea that memory and cigarettes and and things dissolving and and reforming. Um, I mean, I like your reading the scene detective. Funnily enough, Dennis and I never discussed that particular element of it. It was always mm. it was always what it was. Um, nobody ever questioned it. Um, we all called it the singing dick. I was absolutely <laughs> I was I was absolutely thrilled um, at, at three or four years after making it to walk past a pawn shop in <laughs> on Tunnel Court Road, uh, an adult video store. And there was the, the cover of, of a, a video called The Stinging Detective. <laughs> it was bondage. It was some woman in black patent leather oh. with a riding crop and and some guy in a, it was uh, The Stinging Detective. I To this day, I deeply regret not having bought that video uh just just for the fun of it but that's when you know you made it i'm gonna yeah. find it and i'm gonna send it to you please do i would i would love it uh it it's just such a delicious piece of, of sort of memorabilia really um yeah so as i said we never explored the title um that deeply hmm. together he and i um it it just always was um, but it, I'm, it, like all the rest of it, I think Dennis was so often working on such a deeply intuitive level as, as a great artist, and I will call him that, although he'd probably balk at the title, um, uh, that, that, you know, many things were infused with significances that he may not have even articulated to himself. You know, and I think that is what happens when, when a great artist touches greatness, that they're working on levels, that, on so many different levels. And I think Dennis was in The Scene Detective. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Uh, stay Bye. safe and we will talk to you again soon. All right, much love. Bye. Bye. John Emil, ladies and gentlemen, I- Just John, just John. We don't John. have to call him, we don't even have to say his last, now, John Emil. John. And yeah, uh, Matthew, I'm surprised that you're not passed out right now uh, in the light. Because... It's the endorphins. It's the endorphins. It's the thrill of it all. Yeah. Oh, yes. I, I love that. When you get out of like a good interview or like an interview you've wanted for so long and then you just, there's that couple seconds after it's like, oh, wow. Well, you know, I'll be honest with you for the longest time, again, since it's been obvious that, you know, how much I obsess with this, this, Film. I'm, I always call it a film. And I understand even on films, they'll call it the show. It also has a, it's a yeah. film to me. But Look, Zack Snyder's Justice League is a four-hour film. The Seeing Detective is now a six-hour film. I've spent years trying to convince people, like publications I work with, to let me do like an oral history of the whole thing. Talk to everybody. Talk to John. Talk to Michael Gambon. You know, Matt, Patrick Maldehyde and Melvin Stone, all of them, and just do like an entire, you know, comprehensive one piece story about it. But, you know, everybody's, you know, very much tied up in what's Hollywood today. And it's interesting to them, but I would have to fund the time to get done all on my own. Yeah. And to finally get to talk to John and Emil about this, such, such a thrill, you know, and I, 
again, just like I'm sure everybody will ever talk to, I wish I could have sat there for hours and just this would, this would, you know, this, this would have been good. I mean, I know a lot of things gonna have to be done on a zoom, but this would have been great to just have like sitting in a cafe, having coffee and just chat about all this. That's, you know what, if we ever get to do a live show, if we do a lot, like get some sort of podcast festival to let us have a live show, he'll probably be one of the, the top candidates because honestly, like, like I said, I just re- remember that name because one day randomly I'm like, wait, is that, the, I, I think I was watching the core and I was like, wait, is that the same John Emile that directed Entrapment? And then it was just like sort of a rabbit hole. And it's like, you know, he, he really puts in like, I, I kind of like how he said, like, I try to elevate like maybe a B picture and like a B plus or an A minus. And it's like, exactly what I was about to say. Exactly. Okay, so this is, this is pretty much what he does because you probably look at, well, except for Singing Detective, because Singing Detective, like he said, that was just, that he just, he, he had to live up to it and he more than did. But probably if you look at other movies like Copycat or even, I'll just go out with the core. If you look at it a certain way, maybe even on the script page, it may not have been as put together. But he, and especially because that's probably his most effects driven piece that he's ever done. Mm. He, did it like a champ and the casting is amazing in that one too. Like he has a real keen eye for casting and it just feels like no matter what he's tackling, he just goes at it with this gusto that he knows what he wants out of it and he gets it. Yeah. I mean, also again, he's obviously somebody, whether or not, whether or not you've seen any of his films, whether or not you enjoy certain films, it's obviously clear that he is somebody who is very specifically in it for you know and not to not to generalize it but we'll say quote unquote the art of it because he could have took that money and did the the short version of the same detective but he had that nobility to say no and that was especially touching hearing him talk about dennis potter and just discussing the ins and outs of that personality and that the, the man behind the the brand so to speak and i love that he turned that down because who knows i mean it, i bet if he if he took it he would have hated it for the rest of his life i mean i and again hearing him talk about the reasons why he turned it down or, or basically the reasons why i didn't like the movie whether or not dennis wrote it or not and it's very true and not to go into it too far but just the fact that you isolate him and you take away all those other characters automatically changes the story and I, I, this is something I wanted to ask John, and maybe we'll talk. We'll talk to him again, and I'll ask him about it. You know, um, you know, the idea that they changed the name of the character from Philip Marlowe to Dan Dark probably was for rights problem. They probably oh, yeah. couldn't get Philip Marlowe again at this time. But that being said, it, it changes the whole thing. Yeah, and especially with the, that's the the one thing that I noticed with the well, the big thing that I noticed with the miniseries versus. The, the Cliff Notes version is the fact that all the other patients aren't there and you don't have like, uh, you don't have uh, Reginald and the older gentleman arguing with each other. You don't have those poor patients that die in the bed next to him and he's wondering like, is this some sort of curse? And yes. just like, even as simple as the, the gentleman that keeps shaking his hands. Like at a certain point I was watching, I think it was episode three or four. And there was just, I forget what the moment was, but my wife was watching it with me and she's like, that poor man, like stop school. I think it was with a middle Staunton at like yeah. a, co- and he's like trying to tell her coffee or tea. And she's like, how about Ovalton? She's like, that poor man, what, what? he's <laughs> saying coffee. Clearly he's starting the C sound. And just, 
that's texture. That's but, you know, living in the world. And that's what really sells something like that is there was a texture of that world. Whereas, yeah. you know, Singing Detective 2003 was probably like the black box version. Like we can't cast all these roles. We can't put all this money in. But that's, that's exactly the thing. And that's exactly the point. Again, going back to it, you know, yes, even the Cliff Notes version technically is telling the same story. You get the point of it, but all those other characters, again, because even, even uh, I think they called him Naughty at one point, you know, not just that scene where he, and then he curses her out, you know, he's you know, yeah. <laughs> for not giving him what he wanted. But near the end when he's saying goodbye to him, because you think the whole time is like, you know, oh, he's supposed to be feeble and his mind's not there. His mind's there. It's something about him you never knew until you paid attention. Reg, you know, Mr. Hall didn't know Reginald was this criminal because he just like, oh, he's, he's the stupid guy next to my bed that I, I need to talk to. Yeah. And you learn all these things. You discover who they are. Because again, going back to it, I don't care what anybody says, even though there's a lot dealing with paranoia and, and, and a lot of other stuff, this is a film about understanding who you are and what brought you to this place. And to a certain extent, that's probably why you can revisit it so often because rarely yes. we stay in a static place in our lives. And that's, it's, that's another one of those beautiful things you can say about a film where it's like, I can return to this movie every so often and I learn something new. There's even still, I always necessarily either learn something new or maybe I forgot about something. It's like, oh, that's right, that happened again. But up until re-watching it to get ready to talk about this, I never kind of put the idea of that the, one of the very first people you see in the entire film, which is when it's doing the actual thing detective noir story is the quote unquote homeless undercover agent who's like hardly in the film, basically gets murdered like two seconds into it. Yep. And it's kind of kicks off that story. But the way he looks and the way he dresses is the scarecrow. It's the teacher as the scarecrow. And I never really thought about it until rewatching it this time. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I, I, this is one of the reasons why I just love having this, this show with you is just, it's, it, it's very rare in our jobs that we get to be reflexive because it's very much we're covering what's coming up. And then yeah. sometimes, you know, if it's something really big, we get to be reflexive about it, but this is just a free space for whatever, whatever projects we want to cover. But all right, Matthew, do you have anything else to add to our case file for the singing detective? I have a lot more I'm going to add, which is the problem. So we'll have, we'll, we'll definitely revisit this somewhere. Maybe, oh yeah, maybe a year long anniversary will be our our revisit to the Sing Detective to to follow up on all the things we still need to talk about, both between us and and John Emil. I'm just really excited that the, we're this early in, and that this is kind of one of those. This feels like a linchpin of something that we could like the the one of the oh. most overdue rentals, and and for good reason, but. It's, 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 it, was, it was a pleasure to be here to talk about it with you and with John Emil. And I think that's, at this point now, like everything we want to talk about, go see The Singing Detective. Not, not the 2003, when you look it up, don't see 2003 Robert Downey Jr. That's not what you want to watch. I need to see it again now just to just to really hammer home. Sure. Just not 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 really out of any, you know, fealty to it, but like I remember even seeing that for the first time and I was like, okay. Oh yeah, but by the time I saw that though, I was 
And again, I, I try not to be that person that thinks like somebody's going to ruin something I love, so I'm not automatically not going to like it. But yeah, the, they missed the mark. Let's just, I'm sorry. They missed the mark. Sorry, Dennis, you missed the mark, you know? Yeah. Um, but all that being said, this is, this is important. This, I think this is something important that people need to see that they haven't seen. And that's yeah. that. No, absolutely. Uh, the Singing Detective, unfortunately, I don't think it's rentable or streamable, really. Like the most I saw was a $100 DVD box set. $100? I was $100 on Amazon right now. Oh my God, really? Yeah, at least that's I saw brand new. I'm not selling mine, which, you know, for those listening, I'm holding up right now. Well, it'd be nice if they did some sort of like spruced up Blu-ray. I'm, you can find it out there. Look it up. You'll yes. find it. Wink, wink. I'm not going to tell you where, but you can find it. Okay. That's, let's yes. just, we'll leave it. We'll leave it at that for everybody listening. It's just fine. Find it and throw it on the tube. You know, it's, you know, it's out there. It is well worth the time. Uh, it is definitely one of those ones that is going to sit there and just, I'm going to have to noodle around with it even more. And, and I love that. And if you need assistance finding it, email us at overdurentals at gmail.com. Go to our Facebook, facebook.com slash overdue rentals. Write us a comment. We'll help you out. Instagram.com. <laughs> I forgot where we are. Instagram.com slash overdue rental show or Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash rentals overdue. We'll help you out. Find us. We're here to help. Organic segue. It's like we have a podcast or something. That's beautiful. Primo, baby. So you get out there and you scratch over the singing detective off your overdue rentals list. It's done. It's finished. And now the last thing we got to do, Matthew, where can we find you on the internet? Instagram.com slash South stash is the most, is the most common place you'll see me active. But you can also find me at twitter.com slash stash reviews. And I'm Mike Reyes. You can find me writing at cinemalend.com and you can find me on social media on all three major networks at Mr. Controversy 83. So this rental has officially been closed. Cross it off your overdue rentals list. And until we get some sort of other ending, uh, I guess we're just uh, gonna have to close this case for good until next time.